This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 225 brought to you in association with Smart and EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by James Hickman, CCO of EcoSpend, to talk about the inflection point when your tech firm suddenly goes ballistic. You get extreme success, which you might think is wonderful, and it is, but then you have to give up sleep and eating and minor things like that because it makes the day job very busy in a number of ways that James will tell us about. James should know about this because EcoSpend were formed a mere five years ago and have recently been acquired by Trustly. Together, they make up the UK's largest open banking player. EcoSpend folks have thus been a tad busy in a journey that went from a man and a dog in a basement to, along the way, winning the tender for the Inland Revenue's self-assessment payments account. You may have heard of the Inland Revenue. They have quite a few unwilling clients. EcoSpend won against incumbent competition and thus went through a real inflection point when suddenly they had to deal with gazillions of payments. So, if you fancy founding a fintech, or any tech, or any business, and selling out in five years, listen up, as you're bound to have to go through an inflection point to make you extremely valuable so quickly. And James is a man who has been there and knows how it is done, or at least how one survives it. Plenty to talk about, so let's go on with the show. Good afternoon, James. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Hello, Mike. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's uh, fantastic to be here. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Well, it's particularly fantastic for me to be here because you've given me a nice warm cup of herbal tea on a day when it's one degree centigrade and very rainy and I've been mooching all over London. It's, London's a damp place at the best of the time. So, yes, we're nice and warm in here. And clearly, <laughs> as fortunately, your, your memory is better than mine of the pod prep call. And I'm definitely going senile because uh, I wasn't quite sure whether, whether we'd pod prepped how to um, make yourself look sexy and get trade sold or trade bought perhaps from that way around or inflection point but fortunately you remembered which one of the two we settled on in the end now one of the interesting things it's always hard to find something new to chit chat about before we kick off but to cut a long story short you used to work in a different vertical as it's called which wasn't fintech but uh, i would say has been much in the news but actually it was rather the news in fact yeah it's a great question so um i spent probably uh 17 years of my career working in uh, various media companies and uh, in fact my last job was working as an internal VC at one of the large UK media groups and uh, I had this helicopter view of the uh, digital landscape. I was meeting a lot of founders, a lot of startups, seeing a lot of business models across many, many different industries and I had already sort of slightly got to know and somewhat fallen in love with this thing called open banking and then I met the founder of EcoSpend, uh, who was in fact looking for money. He, uh, he didn't get any money from us, but he got me instead. So I persuaded him to, uh, to, to give me a job as the first commercial employee at his business. So I made the uh, pretty seismic step of uh, moving from the media, which was all I knew at that point, into the uh, exciting, fast-paced world of fintech a couple of years ago. Okay. And so 
I mentioned five in the introduction for some random reason. So when were EcoSpend formed then? So EcoSpend was set up around 2018 to take full advantage of the change in law that enabled uh, the account-to-account flow of payments and uh, access to, 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 to banking data, which is often known as open banking. So the, the business was formed in 2018. Uh, the, they, they spent a couple of years building the technology, becoming authorised by the FCA, creating the direct connections to the entire UK bank ecosystem. And then I joined when it was really just a, a very clever and effective piece of technology to help them attract some customers. Ah, oh, so then you single-handedly um, got them as gazillion clients, which we'll come on to in a minute. But thinking of the, the media, and it's interesting that you didn't exactly leap from one vertical to another. You sort of did a kind of knight-like move, you know, you came one direction and then the other, and that you moved into, this, as you say, the sort of the VC space and the startup space and the, the, the new businessy space uh, within media, and then, as it were, stayed in that dimension, just moved into the, the fintech vertical. But it occurs to me, thinking about the media and thinking about how different sectors have been disrupted, the trite comment, which I'm sure, therefore, I make all the time, is that, of course, technology is disrupting things. But it occurs to me that technology is disrupting things in extremely differential ways. So back in the day, when you and I were a lad, or a little bit older, there was newspapers and, and that was it. And if you wanted to find out what was going on, you'd read a newspaper. And, and back in the day, you may not be as old as I, but you're not such a spring chicken. Back in the day, you could buy different newspapers with different opinions. These days, they all tend to have the same, which is a, a, a different uh, phenomenon on a, on a number of matters. They, they don't differ. But then, what, of course, what happens with technology and the interweb, then loads of people start putting stuff on the, on the interweb and social media and all these kind of things. So now we've got many, many ways of finding out what's going on with the rest of the world, which is one kind of disruption. You've then got the other kind of disruption, which is very prominent at the moment, given um, my former school chum, Mark Stein, who's been uh, beaten up by the regulator. We had sort of Tuck on a few years ago, was talking about how the fact that everything is regulated almost out of existence. Regulation is a kind of bindweed across the economy. Anybody who's seen uh, Jeremy Clarkson's Farming 1 and Farming 2 will see that farmers are not exempted. And then, of course, more recently, we've got ChatGPT, which, based on my little plays with ChatGPT, is better at writing articles and knows more than the uh, average journalist. So it sounds like the media is a good place to have got out of. I wouldn't necessarily, as a blind man, be sort of putting my money on, on the media number on the roulette wheel as a great investment over the next few years. But you obviously know way more than I am. Well, no, not at all, but I'd say it's a fascinating comparison, and I can just about remember when uh, the newspaper was completely preeminent before internet news really took hold, and when tabloid newspapers you know, would, th- would think nothing of selling three million plus copies over a weekend or on a Sunday. And then clearly we've seen this massive migration away from physical print into digital, and I think that's being reflected across lots of different aspects of our society and now winding the clock forward many of us consume our news through mobile digital devices many of us don't just stick to one media brand we look at various sources we have untrusted news coming in from from social media which is in many ways unverified so yes it's a little bit like the wild west within the media and there are certain comparisons that one can draw when one looks at other other emerging parts of the digital economy. I think with regards to regulation, we are very lucky in this country to have a very fervent startup scene within the world of fintech. I think uh, there's some stat to say that London has more fintechs than the whole of Europe combined at the moment. And 
whilst we love to bash the government uh, in, in many ways for good reason, what the UK government have done in the last 15 years around fintech has been remarkable to maintain a very competitive position and maximise the levels of investment into the UK fintech scene that I think far eclipses what's happening in Europe. So actually, I would say that we are benefiting from almost a deregulation of uh, traditional financial systems. And what we do, which is driven by PSD2, Payment Services Directive 2, which allows us to connect to all the bank's APIs and build this new infrastructure, we are actually a very disruptive, cost-efficiency-driving solution for many businesses across many different walks of life. You mentioned HMRC. We were incredibly lucky to win that uh, relationship. It was a very competitive tender. It was a sort of forensic analysis of our, of, of our community, and it was really our first customer. So yeah, we couldn't have been more fortunate with that one. And I think the, the, the numbers were released early this year that we've processed, I think, you know, north of 13 billion pounds of taxpayers' money through an account-to-account payment solution. And that is a direct migration away from cards. So a bit like how we might one day remember landline telephones as something that we used to have Perhaps one day we will also remember that piece of plastic with a 16-digit card number and an expiry date that was eminently hackable and and required a lot of uh, links in the chain. You can see that becoming a thing of the past too, because we are really leveraging the fact that we all have a smartphone, we all have an online bank account, and we're all very used to using our biometric ID to initiate certain things within our smartphone-driven banking apps. And I think we are seeing that at scale across not just government, but also other private sector clients as well. Yes, I mean, I'm sure, apart from the, the, the point about regulation, where um, although the odd uh, initiative has been made in terms of opening up APIs, no society in the history of man has ever been regulated to the extent of ours. But I, I do wonder, for reasons I shall come on to, how good it is relying on everything to be digital. And the reason I'm particularly wondering recently is I just closed my last kind of, uh, kind of physical bank account, as it were, and it's all on my phone, but as somebody who smashed his phone a couple of times on holiday, lost passwords, got locked out of apps like Monzo and, and Revolut, <laughs> I'm rather wondering whether uh, I've put too many chips on the technology number. So moving on to the main course then, so as we both mentioned, you suddenly had billions of payments uh, as opposed to uh, a few the day before. Before we dive into the various dimensions of challenge, that the inflection point, that the exponential scaling stage of the, the successful growth company amounts to. What was your, I was joking about 25 hours a day, of course, because there weren't 25 hours a day, the astute listener would know there's only 24. What was your personal experience of sudden success in EcoSpend when it, everything suddenly goes to the roof? I mean, were you just sort of working non-stop? Was it sort of just frenetic or? Well, I, I think, I think we've, we've been very lucky. Obviously, I'd like to say we have worked pretty hard, uh, which I think is true. And we're, we're, we're very lucky, firstly, with the quality of the technology that we have, because it's very easy to, or it's a lot easier to sell a product that actually works, that delivers. And we are just particularly fortunate with the quality of our, our software engineers and the systems that they have built. And I think well, we've been relatively uh, fortunate with winning sort of large mandates early on in our history, particularly with the likes of HMRC. You know, there is no bigger customer 
in the UK than the government and they have become an absolute cheerleader or, or champion of, of, of the technology that we've, we've offered to them and they're a very good way of us being able to demonstrate the benefits to the wider industry. So to answer your question, Mike, I think it's a combination of, uh, of luck and uh, having, great, having great technology and I suppose working, uh, yeah, working relatively hard. It's not as if there's been a sort of bolt of lightning moment. It's just one of those, it's felt quite evolutionary, I suppose, when you're at the coalface chipping away, it's quite hard to sort of look back and go, okay, that was the moment that it happened. But um, I think we've just, yeah, we, 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 we've made our, our fair share of mistakes, but luckily we've made slightly fewer mistakes than uh, good decisions. Yes, and I'm sure you're being far too modest because we can all do with good fortune in life uh, in general. We can all do with avoiding tripping over on the staircase and breaking our leg this afternoon. So we should never disdain good fortune. However, in the context of, of what you've done and in the context of being product-driven, the whole MVP idea, which is floated around in tech in general, coming back to this point that digital is impacting different sectors in different ways, there are many sectors in which you sort of cobble together some MVP and go and show it around and then you know, take a few clients on and, and improve it as you go along. But fintech isn't one of those things that you MVP, that you get some sort of shoddy string and sellotape, because funnily enough, people and clients don't tend to like it when you lose their money and it goes down a hole of electrons and, and disappears ever again. So there is definitely merit, if one believes in what one is doing, in having as robust a product from a tech perspective at the beginning as one can, and one that you can add a, a bunch of zeros onto the, the volumes and it doesn't sort of blow up. You know, you, you don't really want to go down to the local Curry's by the cheapest Dell laptop going and saying, this is our computer, this is our piece of technology. So, but just starting with the technology, because I think the technology is these days actually one of the easier ways to scale, one of the easier factors or dimensions to scale, perhaps, unlike a dozen years or so ago when, you know, you'd have to make your by going by more servers from Curry's, in that I assume that uh, given that people use things like Amazon Web Services and all this kind of stuff, if I suddenly... This metaphor doesn't work, never mind. Uh, if I suddenly have a thousand times more listeners on the, on the podcast, I will wave my credit card at, actually, in my case, my, my um, podcast host, because podcasts are actually hosted on a, a spe- different host from the website host. Anyway, I wave the card, and they'll just give me more volumes automatically. In the same way, I assume that if you're going from 23 million to 23 billion transactions, a large part of this is you're waving your credit card at AWS and just paying for more computers, as it were. Yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate summation, really. Our systems are very scalable, and we benefit from that sort of cloud-based infrastructure that you talk about. And I think we were talking about this yesterday and saying, actually, if you're a sort of small business, you should probably start by servicing a small customer and then build from there. We actually did the reverse. We started with possibly the biggest customer uh, that we could imagine. And then we sat around and we, uh, we watched that first payment come through. I think one of the digital team at HMRC paid their, their own self-assessment on, I think it was the 24th of March, 2020. And now, you know, we, we, we did, I think, over, collectively across our entire portfolio, we processed well over a million transactions in January. So this is not technology that, that can't scale. And that, I think that's one of the great you know, benefits and one of the huge value adds of, of, of anything, you know, fintech, digital, such as this. It, 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 if it works for one, it will work for, for, for many. So that's, a, yeah, that's a, we are very lucky, I think, in that respect. Yes, and thinking back to when technology wasn't technology as we think of it, back in the day, somebody actually who's now resting with the angels, God rest his soul, uh, became a chairman. Clive Watts 
did the BT privatisation, which is the first of the privatisations over here. And then a bit later we did British Gas, and, and, and this someone in particular decided that uh, on the British Gas flotation, and because we'd now bought Goose and Grants as stockbrokers, and stockbrokers do share sales and stuff, that this time round we will offer free share trading to everybody who wants to sell their British Gas. Sounded like a good idea at the time to some people. And then what happened, of course, was the entire back office just collapsed because millions of faxes came in, millions of envelopes and all that kind of stuff. And back in the day, you know, where the day of fax... This is what we're talking about, the 80s. Days of fax machines, the days of envelopes, the days of share certificates being sent in the post and all this. It was an absolute nightmare and it took absolute bloody months, at a minimum, I think, to sort out. So I mentioned that historic tale just to emphasise to the folk who have grown up in a tech generation that notwithstanding all the challenges that are about the modern world, the ability to rapidly scale your technology and, metaphorically speaking, do the same today, which is, oh, yeah, OK, we'll offer everyone a free share trade, and you, know, you just wave your, wave your credit card at Amazon Web Services and, and, your, and your software, which works for a dozen trades or work for 12 million trades, is phenomenal. So taking that angle and riffing off it, so one of the challenges back in the day was there were a finite number of people in the back office who could only do a number of things in the day. We don't want to imply that your business is just one big computer humming away in Amazon somewhere. You have people in your business, and you still need people to do something in a, in a tech business. So when you're going through this exponential increase in volumes, there must be quite some operational challenges for the various individuals running various functions. How does that work out? I think, I mean, absolutely, any business, however technical, is all about the people, and that will never change. And I think what technology allows you to do in this type of case is to ensure that your people are working on the right things. You talk about chat GPT and, you know, that is effectively, you know, replacing the more mundane end of life. And then you want your human beings to bring in those talents and skills and the degree of empathy and insight that you can't replace with, uh, with, with, with computers or machines. So I think absolutely, yes, you always need to have good people but you leverage the fact that your technology, if it's useful and if there's a, a genuine need for it and the benefits are sufficiently uh, significant, you can then um, focus your people on, on, on doing the right things whilst leveraging you know, the power of the tech. And you know, I'm reminded of our growth. We haven't actually grown our team physically in human terms significantly because the technology just works. And uh, you know, we were kind of when we launched live with, with, with such large organizations as, as clients, we were quite nervous that we would be overrun by customer service requests. Thankfully, that never happened because I think you're also dealing with a, a more intelligent and sophisticated customer base that is becoming increasingly digital in their own right. You know, we're all now very familiar with doing lots and lots of things via a smartphone, uh, including making and receiving payments. So I think firstly you have to have a business that genuinely delivers value to both consumers and obviously the businesses that you're working with, but also services that leverage existing sort of societal changes in digital consumer behaviours, if that makes so sense. I was going to ask you that ratio because I thought it was quite interesting. So from the sort of sake of argument, a year before the inland revenue account to the year after, what kind of increase in volumes of transactions occurred and what kind of increase in people occurred? Did you increase people tenfold? Did you double them? Just another 10%? Our volumes are growing at sort of 500 to 1,000% year on year, I suppose. And our employee base is growing by, I suppose, 
less than 10%. Wow, so there's a, there's a ratio of 100 there. Yeah, that's not a bad way of looking at it, actually. But no, we're recruiting and we're clearly in, you know, keen to hire great people, as any fast-growing business is, but we're not necessarily needing to hire operational customer service staff. We want more people who can go out and be great ambassadors for the business and win new accounts, new relationships. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I've forgotten who it was, but I mean, back in the day, it was, I remember being sort of gobsmacked by it. I don't know, something like Instagram, which had got global mega success and there were, I don't know, 16 of them or something. Yeah. <laughs> just, just in an office of, of this size on one floor. Yeah, I think there is, I mean, that is the power of digital. I suppose that's why these businesses command the values they do because they're so scalable. So in terms of this exponential increase, um, you're obviously a business with the open banking thing, uh, which can be very technologically driven based on that information. But... So where do you think the pinch point came for you? What was the greatest challenge if it wasn't technology and if it wasn't people of going through a massive phase change in terms of how much business you're doing? I mean, it's a really good question. I would say, I mean, obviously the technical solution, the, the, the product is, is critical. Having good people on the ground, you know, who can deliver the product and represent the business effectively to new customers is clearly important but maybe you know one way of looking at it is the sort of the mindset the fact that if you are now representing a beneficial service that adds value to large organizations you have to walk the walk and that's a sort of that's a fast growing up process to go from just an idea on a piece of paper to a bit of technology to actually being in the market shaking hands with very senior people at large organizations who are now your clients that's quite a rapid transition in terms of the mindset and the sort of uh, self-perspective of any company, I'd say. I see. And just, just a bit out of interest, actually, talking of the, the technology, one thing we glossed over, I better not mention the name of any bank in case they happen to be one that you've got a relationship with, but let's say XYZ Bank, a tier one bank in Canary Wall for the sake, sake of argument. I launch my fintech tomorrow and I want an open banking connection to them. Do I just sort of API them and I get it? Or do I need to go over them, wine and dine and shake hands and smile and wear a tie? Or No, it should all be, um, it's all uh, widely available through the, um, the UK OBIE standard. So every UK bank now is obliged to be what's called OB compliant or OBIE compliant, which means they have to expose their APIs to people like us. We're a third-party provider, a TPP, that then goes in and connects to those banks. So no, you don't need to go and knock on the door of the chairman in Canary Wharf to, to get their blessing. You can just, just do it sort of behind the scenes through their, their sandbox. So actually, if you've got good engineers, we've got some engineers in the UK, some, some offshore, and they can do it from, from anywhere in the world. And I think we've built a system now that enables us to connect to a bank in 15 minutes if they become OB compliant, which I think is a, a good point of differentiation. Us. So presumably, it, it, it sounds like it's very much more equivalent to, for the sake of argument, the electricity grid than wholesale banking was back in the day, where you need a whole series of correspondent banks in the States, and you need trust banks in Japan, and you need this whole sort of panoply. Whereas now, roughly speaking, it probably doesn't operate precisely like this, but I can bung some solar panels on my roof, don't know why it's not sunny at the moment, and I can supply energy to the grid, and there's, you know, there's a little clever technical box which makes sure I, I don't blow the grid up and the grid doesn't blow me up. So you become part of the plumbing. Good, right. Well, on this case study of one, <laughs> in terms of how hard can it be, uh, the answer is if, 
if you've got it all sorted in the first place, it's not so hard. <laughs> uh, although perhaps you're being a bit modest. Now, one other dimension of this that occurs, and again, it's a problem of success rather than failure, which is that suddenly you're doing a gazillion transactions and suddenly you become a very hot property. And in terms of the management team, when they're not sort of sitting there waving the credit card, Amazon Web Service, and seeing volumes go through the roof and being pleased that you don't need a whole complaints department, you're then having to sort of double hat and not just sell your product to clients and make sure that that product is operating properly, but then you have to go at one level and, and think about selling your business, either via some realisation and some IPO, because it's now worth a few quid more than it used to be when you founded it, or trade sales. So examining that direction and actually bleeding into what I said at the beginning, which is we did touch on two topics when we were talking. What stage was it when you thought, ah, well, okay, one thing we could do is just keep getting more clients and pay ourselves a bigger dividend every year, as it were. And another thing is we could go for a realisation and raise capital, maybe to increase our our scale, as we seem to be doing this okay. And either we do that via, I don't know, via a VC raise or via an IPO or via a trade sale. What was that thinking? Yeah, so it's a really good question. I think all these types of decisions kind of link to the founder of the business and what they are looking for from their experience of, of, of launching it. And I think in our case, we had a very smart founder, very uh, experienced, successful entrepreneur, but he was very much an early stage investor, get the business to a certain scale and then try and divest it or at least raise some external funding. So we actually looked quite uh, extensively at the VC route initially, and we did lots of presentations. I shudder uh, to think of some of those early ones where we were really early stage, and I think it's important to not lose your nerve and just keep on going because inevitably you will get better, and your pitch and your vision and your ability to communicate the messages will will improve all the time. But then actually, the the, the VC route is clearly less desirable in some ways because you're you're still sort of, you know, you're still on the hook for growing the business uh, in the extent that, you know, there is still a mandate to continue to to need to raise money. You know, you talk about seed funding and then Series A and Series B and so on. So, you know, each series of investment is sort of designed to get you to that next stage. And I think in hindsight, that would have been quite a stressful approach. And actually, we were very, very lucky when we were also exploring the trade sale route to get to know this incredible business called Trustly, uh, which is actually the global leader in what we do. They are the pioneers uh, of account-to-account payments, and they were launched back in 2008. And um, so the, 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 the first part of the thinking with them is that we actually do the same thing. So there's no cannibalization risk of each other's business. Actually, we're on a completely shared sort of uh, journey, a shared vision. And, and then the other thing to point out is they are P-backed. They're global. They've got very successful distribution in the US and Europe, they're cash flow positive and actually, you know, they've been uh, generous enough to make us feel like we're a key part of their UK plans because the UK is a market that they're, they've been working very well in, but we're hopefully going to help, um, help them accelerate that. So we will effectively, uh, as of probably the you know, end of this year, be subsumed fully into that business and we will be part of this global Trustly family. And I think inevitably in these new emerging uh, technologies, you always see consolidation. So you'll always see the smaller players uh, merge with the, the bigger ones. And I think this is a case of that. Interesting. Well, I'm, I'm pleased to hear this sort of commercial angle to considering the whole trade sale route. Just going back to your time in the, the media and being a spinner of narratives and media revolving around narratives and 
who's paying them or what sounds most exciting. Obviously, the tech press is, is absolutely dominated by the whole VC mentality and unicorns and raises and you know, all this kind of stuff is news. Uh, and that is not to diss that in the slightest. It's a very significant route. However, in terms of the number of businesses that form in this country or in Europe or, or the world in a given year, next to none of them quotes unicorn and are on the pages of the sort of the trade tech press as having unicorn and having done 17 rounds with VCs and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm very keen to get away, the, away from the idea that that's, that is the criterion of success. That is a route that very few businesses go down and congratulations to all the ones that do it. However, there are these other routes and I think it's been interesting hearing you say that because many people listening to the podcast today in the difficult economic situation we find ourselves in, it might be worth them considering, as you say, joining up with some fellows in their vertical and rather like single-cell life forms becoming multi-cell life forms and, and then cooperating to get the scale when there's something of a sort of a VC drought going on and when there's no longer so much hot money flowing into the tech sector and you don't have to be a billion dollars to actually be something that's incredibly worthwhile for society or even just the world of commerce forget, forget society. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's all about synergy. So we were lucky that our technology in the UK is now powering all of Trustly's uh, large clients in the UK. So I think if you can find those synergies, I think not focusing too much on unicorn status or huge valuations on paper, I, in a way, it's a little bit meaningless. I think what you're trying to do is really prove that you have a, a product and a team and a market opportunity that all fit together to generate you know, decent value for everyone concerned. I think the, uh, the media, as usual, puts a spin on unicorn status and it becomes almost like a kids wanting to become an Instagram influencer. It's a sort of uh, slightly... Or a fighter pilot. When I was young, I wanted yeah. to be a fighter pilot and, and anything else was not even second best. You That's know. better than a TikTok star. <laughs> I don't think TikTok was around when I was uh, <laughs> exactly. building little model spitfires and hanging on the <laughs> ceiling with them shooting the Messerschmitts. So pulling the, the two things together, in terms of your inflection point, you didn't, unlike many companies, need to end up with 10 or 100 times the number of staff. Those fintechs that have been through that or any other techs that matter find that there's quite a challenge when you're recruiting people who recruit people who recruit people because you've moved away from you know, the, the founders, the senior team, interview everybody and know who they are. And there's quite a challenge when you go from being, I don't know, 20 people to... 300 people to maintain your culture. But in terms of also from the trade sale perspective, you have a culture and Trustly have a culture and there may be some overlaps, but equally there are some differences. The dates of your Christmas parties may vary and, and other perhaps more substantive angles. So in terms of both the exponential rise, even if you haven't had to hire people and culture tends to be people on the computers, but also the, the, the trade sale, how have you seen this whole area of culture and what would you sort of care to share as useful learning experiences you've had on that? I mean, I think culture is so important. Personal relationships are clearly the most important thing because if you like a colleague, if you like someone you work with, if you like a new, uh, a new boss or you know, a new owner, then clearly it makes, it makes a huge difference to your outlook of personal involvement, personal enjoyment and so on. So absolutely culture should be should, should be front and center of any kind of partnership such as this i think the alignment of objectives is is clearly very important there are some businesses 
in our sector that have been absorbed by competitors. And then you can see the natural tensions that might appear when you think of cannibalization risks and so on. So I think it's that shared sense of objectives, looking to, to do something together, having a, a combined vision, very important. Trustly is absolutely you know, aligned with, well, we're aligned with what they're doing. And then I guess, although they're a, they're a big, they're a large organization, you know, compared to us, they're actually still relatively disruptive and startup-y in their own right, given the incumbent payment uh, platforms that exist. So there is very much a shared view of wanting to disrupt and change, uh, you know, our, our industry, which is very, very exciting. And then, you know, on a personal level, they're, uh, you know, they're a very good bunch. Yes, and by the sound of it, it is not at all, even if they are the larger of the two, it's not at all as if you had been, say, bought by Citigroup and you suddenly became part of Citigroup, where the culture would be a million miles away from a relatively uh, recent startup, and, and, and the gap would be nigh on um, unbridgeable. You've got a situation where perhaps there isn't even need, of, need for a bridge. There's just sort of uh, something of a blend going on. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of uh, sort of shared partnership behind all of this. I feel like we are really being listened to and it's very collaborative. We haven't been locked away in, a, in a, dark, a darkened room and told to get on with it. It's, yeah, quite the opposite. Excellent. Well, long may this honeymoon phase last in the marriage. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there, my brand partners of the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled on success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The listedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So we've mentioned EcoSpend and Trustly once or twice, James. However, I'm not entirely sure that the average listener will have a clear understanding that you sell X, Y, and Z to A, B, and C. So maybe you'd like to let them know what the X, Y, and Z and A, B, and C is and, and also what you need more of tomorrow to be even bigger and better than you are today. Thanks for asking, Mike. So we're, an, we're a, a uk based open banking uh, platform. We're part of the Trustly family. Uh, so we have global distribution for both account-to-account payments and solutions built on customers' live banking data. And on the payment side, uh, we effectively allow consumers to make payments directly from their online bank accounts, uh, whether that's their desktop or their, their smartphone uh, app or banking app. And uh, we work with large organizations effectively as a replacement to cards. So if you think about a large organization today that might have traditionally taken card payments, we can now provide a solution that allows their customers to pay directly from their accounts. And the benefits are many and uh, significant, ranging from significant efficiency and cost savings, instant receipt of funds, no sensitive data, is, uh, is shared, removing the risk of things like chargeback fraud and PCI DSS compliance on the part of the, the business. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's really the next generation of payments to challenge cards. And we are live and processing um, significant volumes for, 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 for large organisations here in the UK market and uh, in, in other markets as part of the Trustly family. Excellent. Well, I'm sure more clients um, always helps. Are you after anything else in the next year in terms of your growth or is it uh, more merging with Trustly? 
I think it's about continuing to prove the, uh, the business case, continuing to win new mandates. We, we work with a, a large investment platform called Hargreaves Lansdowne, which is going live at the moment. So that's another significant brand to be working with. And I think we're just part of this mission to slowly but surely migrate the UK's customers from, uh, from paying by card to paying by bank. Excellent. Well, that sounds like a very interesting experience and interesting journey and I think the final takeaway I have from this which is that um, in terms of the whole narrative around startups you know one man and the dog starts the business or two men and dog or two girls and a cat whatever uh, start it up uh, and then one day they sell it and go oh wow we made all the money but actually it doesn't matter what you do in life whether it's getting married whether it's changing job whether it's changing country you still go to bed and get up in the morning <laughs> and life, life goes on the day after your IPO life goes on the day after the trade sale and um, if from what, a bit like being married, perhaps. If from one perspective uh, everything has changed, uh, then for another perspective often nothing has changed. You get up and you're pretty much doing the same work you were doing the, the week before, and the road goes on, if not forever, then hopefully for most of us for quite some considerable period of time. So thank you very much for that, James, and I wish you, EcoSpend and Trustly, every success in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance. We could walk in the mountains before dawn, watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride.
watch the firelight dance with me. Watch the firelight dance with me. Watch the firelight.